This is Up for Debate, episode number 240, recorded September 15th, 2022. The Indian and the Hubbard. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Up for Debate, the debate podcast where the two hosts agree on everything. I'm Sean Jennings, joined by a man who has his feet so clear he can defeat an Indian in baseball. It's Matt Mariani. Hello, Matt. I was just going to say, my Thetans are so clear that I remember uh, big, this, big inning. This, Iowa. This, big, this baseball league that, that happened apparently in the early 20th century that no one else does. Good thing I was struck by lightning. Maybe that lightning came from Lord Zenu. How are you doing today, Sean? I, I was about to say, tonight's ultimate goal, figuring out which is more plausible, Zenu or the Iowa Baseball Confederacy. Both yeah. fantastical tales. Yeah. Wow. Where to even begin? So this is our summer reading episode of Up for Debate, our annual summer reading, which I personally, I always look forward to. Um, yes. Yes. We've done this a few years. Now it is mid-September. So we, we ran a little over the summer, but that's okay. Gave us plenty of time to read these books, Matt. Folks who didn't listen to it, I recommend go listen to our episode from the beginning of the summer where we picked these books. We talked about a few other great reads, but we ended up picking two books, one from each of us, Matt, uh, from your wild suggestion, uh, W.P. Kinsella's uh, The Iowa Baseball Confederacy. And I would just like to... Lawrence Wright's I'd like to preface... Clear. Yes, I would, I would like to preface really quick, though, that The Iowa Baseball Confederacy, while it was my pick, it was also technically your pick. I genuinely thought you were going to go for... The, Reg, the Reggie Fils-Aimé bio, autobiography. I thought that was like the low-hanging fruit that you would pick. But I should know by now, Sean, that you don't go for the like low-hanging. You usually go for like the reach ones. And I thought this one was a, a pretty big reach, Kinsella's book. Uh, the Iowa Baseball Confederacy. Well, I, I thought I would consider the Wind Up Bird Chronicles a big win. And mm-hmm. I picked something out of the mainstream, like of all the books that time. And so I said, I, I got to go for the repeat and see if I can pick another winner again out of Matt's list. Yeah. Did we? Yeah, the other. You'll have to stay tuned to find out. Matt, which book sure, yeah. would you like to start with? Um, I think the, the, the order that I, I think I read it in was Going Clear, followed by Iowa Baseball. So that's probably, I'll probably start with Going Clear. Yeah. Are you okay with me now, Matt? Going into the summer reading, how much did you know about Scientology? Um, most of what I knew about Scientology came from the South Park episode um, about Scientology. Uh, I forgot the name of the episode, uh, but that's pretty much all I knew. It's called "Oh, Trapped in the Closet." I think was the episode mm. about Scientology. Yeah. Um, and, uh, turns out that all, like most of what they said was not only not, not only was it true, but, uh, they didn't even go, they didn't really go far enough. What I liked about this book was not only does it expand on the beliefs of, of Scientology, but also on its like creation and mainly on its, on the nature of its founder, L. Ron Hubbard, um, I also want to say that the uh, the other area of knowledge I have is Leah Remini's very good show. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, yes. Where she has a show about Scientology, right? Um, 
Is it Scientology? Is it escaping site? Escaping something like that. Yeah. Uh, Scientology and the aftermath. Yeah. Okay. Maybe. Or maybe that's a new show. I don't know. She she's had a few shows with it, and uh, she's become a very large, outspoken critic uh, about um, about about the religion ever since. Uh, she's had a few shows based on Scientology. Um, yes, escaping Scientology, Scientology in the aftermath, and so on. Yeah. So those are my my previous experiences before reading this book, but I had no idea about like the boat stuff and the, um, the, uh, the sea brigade sea org and, and, and the billion sea year sea contract. And no, and Tom Cruise, of course I knew like how involved he was, but I didn't really know like the extent of that. Um, and uh, yeah, really a lot of, there's a lot of stuff in there. I didn't know about really all the backstory, which kind of explains a lot of it. Like L Ron Hubbard, like in his, his like, uh, his his like days as like a vagabond, basically like a kind of like a snake oil salesman, going from like place to place, selling people on different ideas and defrauding different <laughs> departments of government, like the Navy and um, the Veterans or Bureau and things like that. But um, what was your extent of, of of what you knew about it? Uh, I have run into people offering personality assessments uh, in my life who actually were Scientologists. So um, I have seen them in public. Uh, and no, I did not uh, use an e-meter. But uh, no, I, I look, I, I wasn't an expert. That's what draw, drew me to the book was the opportunity to, you know, this was one of the early sort of wide reaching books about the subject. Um, and uh it was just such a fascinating read. I mean, I agree with you, Matt. I think I were on Hubbard, obviously the star of the story, David Miscavige sort of in the second half, but I think, you know, probably my most interesting takeaway that I think the book did such a good job of was showing the progression of Scientology from the, the early days of experimental religions in general um, changing cultures and attitudes towards religion. L. Ron Hubbard basing his concepts in actual, like proven psychology, you know, psychological um, concepts. And then over time, watching him evolve it as he needed to make money and as he needed to provide security and as he got older and a little more paranoid. And then eventually you get after his death to an organization that um, will do anything to stay in power. So I, I think the transition over the book was really fascinating to watch. And it does leave you thinking, wow, this, you know, did it start from a good place? You know, what what has become of it? It's not just what it is today. Yeah, something that blew my mind during the read was just the vast amount of wealth that the Church of Scientology controls. And yet, um, how few adherents it has, like it has few, few, um, I guess members, but in turn, those members are very, very wealthy 
and have donated large sums uh, in general, not all of them, but like generally very, very wealthy. And they have, they've donated large sums of, of money and, and most of their wealth seems to come from land. Like they owned a lot of, they own a lot of land, especially in California and in Florida, it seems like are the two and in other, other locations around the world, they have like properties in Spain, um, and, and other, other places in Europe that are, uh, I guess, were, you know, they're still, they still have a net value a net worth that, uh, they've been gifted over the years by, by their adherents. And, um, yeah, the amount of, of wealth, I think they come right out and say that in the introduction, pretty much, uh, that, that kind of comparison, the dichotomy between the, the people who adhere to Scientology and the amount of money that, that they've, they've been gifted. And yes. like you I think you, you, you put it very well before, where it is, um, it is very much a uh, a thing that's changed over the years with um, the the founder L. Ron Hubbard's um, desires for money and for security, uh, and then when Miscavige takes over after, what it becomes uh, really more of a. Um, more of a, 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 a kind of like a psychologically manipulative religion, like where it's, it's, it's designed to like catch the most vulnerable of society and trap them and really entrap them and, and really dig kind of dig their claws in and not let go. So wild stuff. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think that was one, one of the more interesting debate for lack of a better word, but arguments in the mm. book is, is Scientology a religion? Mm. And it's one of those things where on its front, of course, many of their practices are um, abhorrent and, and at best unpleasant. But as you read through the book and, and it makes, you know, talks about the original court cases where the United States had to decide whether or not it was a religion and some of the arguments that were made and the way that these people you know, obviously one of the big parts of the book is that people are essentially held against their will or are they right where, um, they're, they're punished. Um, and they're, uh, they're sent. There's a, there's so many friggin' acronyms in this book that I don't, I'm not going to remember all of them, but whatever they call it, uh, where they send people to be punished. The, uh, the idea is that the people who are there, I'd say, I, I felt I could leave at any time, but I didn't. Um, because I truly, you know, I thought I was, uh, it was, it was part of my spiritual, spiritual well-being, part of my recovery to, um, be forced to work without pay and to, to essentially be tortured in many situations. You know, it's, it's just an interesting, when you hear about these things, you said, that's crazy who would do that. But I think the book paints a very good picture of what has brought things to this point and why someone would stick around in, in such a situation. Yeah. Um, the, the techniques that are employed here, I think, well, I think it really seems like Hubbard in his, in the, in the beginnings of, of his goal, he was trying to offer people an alter at first. I think it became like he wanted to make a branch for, psychology like a new psychology that was uniquely american because up to this point 
a lot of scholarship had been done by Europe, by uh, like Europeans. Um, and he took advantage of the fact that much of the scholarship in psychology up until this point was done by um, not only by Europeans, but mostly by European Jews, who uh, a lot of Americans at the time were not very trustful of, right, due to anti-Semitism. Um, and he wanted to make it like, he almost like wanted to put an American face on psychology. And once the APA, the American Psychological Association said like, this is not psychology, right? When, when he was talking about Dianetics back in the beginning, um, I think he took that and said, well, now you're my enemy. Psychologists are now my enemy. And I'm going to make a religion instead. And I'm going to call psychologists out on their treachery. And and from that point on, he kind of frames normal psychology, right? Typical psychology as this adversary, right? He says like psychologists have been basically like they're, they're the servants of Xenu and, and like they're they're the ones that are making sure that the thetans stay in your brains, right? Um, but I'm trying to find, yeah, there are a lot of acronyms, but that quote from the beginning, they said, uh, the goal of the church is to acquire landmark buildings near key locations, such as Music Row in Nashville, DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C., and Times Square in New York City. Um, Hollywood is the center of the real estate empire with 26 properties valued at $400 million. Uh, the church also claims about 12 million square feet of property around the world. Their spiritual headquarters is estimated at uh, being in Clearwater, Florida, valued over at over $168 million. Um, but the largest, it, it has only 30,000 members. Comparatively, that's less than half of the number who identify themselves as Rastafarians. The largest concentration of Scientologists is about 5,000 located in Los Angeles. So very extremely few, like really when you think about the numbers, the demographics at large, but controlling large swaths of wealth and land like worldwide just due to the wealthy nature of its, of its patrons, I guess, and the connections that Hubbard had Hubbard had made. I also really liked how the, how it starts. Um, it talks about that guy, Logan and his kind of his, like, he's not, you know, he's not, he's not what you think of when you think of a Scientologist, right? You think of, Tom Cruise, you think of John Travolta, you think of like these wealthy, well-off celebrities that can afford to take the auditing courses and can afford the e-meter sessions and the textbooks and everything. But this guy, Logan, is like this, he's the son of like this, like a coal miner or something in Canada, like rural Canada. Mm. And he comes across this, like, he kind of like you said, this like person that's offering to do like a personality test with him kind of selling these pamphlets on the street. He gives him one, he gives him a book for free. The guys, he happens to catch the guy when he's really down on his luck on a bad day. And he follows up with it. He starts going to these meetings. So it's, it's a good introduction, I think, because it doesn't, it shows a very atypical side to maybe a, a Scientologist journey that we don't think about um, normally. 
So Jim Logan, the guy's name is. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think um, Lawrence Wright does a, a really great job of, of telling solid, telling this story as a story of people. It's not a very technical history. It's not a very linear history. Uh, but it is told through the eyes of the people who were there. He conducted a lot of interviews, a lot of anecdotes based around people who really lived through it. And again, it's very easy with something like Scientology for you to treat it like this big monolith or this mysterious box. But when you tell it through the stories of people who were there, um, I think it uh, really helps bring it to life. It's actually one reason why Lawrence Wright, this is probably his second most famous book, his famous is called The Looming Tower, uh, which is a um, a book about Al-Qaeda and the lead up to 9-11. And I kind of want to read it because I think if it's told in a similar fashion, I'm like, what a what a tough topic to sort of wrap your mind around, just like the history of it and all the characters and everything. But if you can tell uh, that story in sort of a personal manner, both the Al-Qaeda side and the FBI sort of American security side. Um, I think it could be a really interesting book. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think maybe that's a future summer reading for us. Yeah. <laughs> what, uh, what, a, what an enlightening, uh, uplifting summer read. <laughs> yeah. I will say that his writing style is, is very compelling. Um, he treats each story like a case study and, um, gives it the attention that it deserves. And he kind of lets the, he lets the adherents and the people who have been scammed by Scientology basically craft this, this story. Now, of course uh, we should preface by saying that most are, are like a, and he, he says it, he comes out and says it like first thing, like a majority of what he says in the books has been like discredited by the church of Scientology. And, and they also refuse to like do interviews with him and, kind of saw his his um account uh as as like a disingenuous kind of smear campaign against them um and uh and yeah he um but he i think he does a he does a a spectacular job uh especially of of telling the story of this basically this like lifelong con man that 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 develops a you know, quote unquote religion for um, a lot of people who feel like they need it at that time in their lives to, to get better or to help themselves in some way. He definitely preys on the vulnerable for sure. Like every, everybody in this book has some sort of reason for getting involved, whether, and it could be as benign as, you know, looking to bolster your career if you're working in Hollywood and those circles for like networking. I feel like that's seems to be why like Travolta got involved, right? It was just like to and Tom Cruise sort of in a way. Like it was just like good networking because a lot of the writers and producers were were involved in it. Um, or it could just be yeah, people like Logan or um, uh, other other people in this book that were more. Uh, really saw it as a as something as something was uh, that was worth pursuing. Yep, I agree. I mean, I think that's one of the interesting aspects of the book is the sort of um, stuff Scientology 
Barry's, um, including a, an early book he wrote and some of his personal documents that sort of go counter to the official narrative of Scientology. I'm trying to track down in the book um, in front of me, which this is why ebooks exist, so you can control F, find things. But I'm trying to find his list of affirmations, which was wild, um, that he oh, wrote. Yeah. Uh, at, when he was sort of going through hard times himself uh, prior to Scientology taking off. And I guarantee there's just not going to be a chance. I that find for it, me but... was, it was kind of like the pinnacle of the book. It was kind of like the climax of the book, even though it happened pretty early to me, I thought that was the most interesting, like a, a, a true psychologist would have an absolute, um, an absolute like, Oh, here they are. Field day with the things that he said. Yeah. Uh, so in that exposition. Uh, so this is, it says here, um, this was his, uh, a book he wrote, uh, a secret memoir. It was called Affirmations. Uh, and it was in three parts. The f- first part was course one, um, and it was uh, it was believed that if but through repeating this through self self hypnosis he could convince himself of certain things. I can write. My mind is still brilliant. Masturbation was no sin or crime. That I do not need to have ulcers anymore. That I am fortunate in losing Polly and my parents for they never meant well by me. That I believe in my gods and spiritual things. That my magical work is powerful and effective that the numbers 7, 25, and 16 are not unlucky or evil for me, that I am not bad to look upon, that I am not susceptible to colds, that Sarah is always beautiful to me, that these words and commands are like fire and will sear themselves into every corner of my being, making me happy and well and confident forever. And then there's another, uh, there's course two, I won't read the whole things, but um, some other uh, self-hypnosis affirmations. You can sing beautifully. Uh, you are not sleepy or tired ever. Um, you will live to be 200 years old. Um, the, the, the list goes, there's, they get even wackier. Testosterone blends easily with your own hormones. You have no fear of what any woman may think of your bed conduct. You know, you are a master. You know, they will be thrilled. You can come many times without weariness. Many women are not capable of pleasure in sex, and anything adverse they say or do has no effect whatsoever upon your pleasure. Weird. Yeah. Um, like I said, where to even begin with that? There's, there's. It, it was really. It's it. It's the story. Scientology seems like the story of a man that is trying desperately to find like the ultimate cure for all of these things that are ailing him very self-hating yeah very self-loathing very um very like harsh and insecure and and deeply reflective and lashing out on others especially women it's like um and then i think they said something like that science the church of scientology like denies the existence of that text or something that he thinks oh absolutely Absolutely. No, listen, they control the narrative. Yeah, for sure. Now, Matt, there is 
one other mm. point I want to make, but in order to make that mm. point, I'm going to read you a section. You're an educator, so I'm curious what you mm. think about this. This is yeah. describing the Delphi Academy. This is Scientology schooling. Um, and in Scientology, they believe there's three barriers that may stop a student's progress. One is called lack of mass. Uh, if this, uh, The observation that the word and the object it names are not the same thing. If a student is studying tractors, for instance, it is best to have a real tractor in front of him. The absence of an actual object is disorienting to the student, Hubbard said. It makes him feel psychologically condensed. It actually makes him feel squashed, makes him feel bent, a sort of spiny, sort of dead, bored, exasperated. Uh, second principle is too steep a gradient, uh, as the difficulty a student encounters when he makes a leap he's not prepared for. It's the sort of confusion or reelingness that goes with this one. The solution is to go back to the point where the student fully understands, then break the material into bite-sized pieces. And then the third is the undefined word. It occurs when the student tries to absorb material while bypassing the definition of words employed. Uh, Hubbard says uh, in one of his uh, writings, the only reason a person gives up a study or becomes confused or unable to learn is because he has not, because he has gone past a word that was not understood. Words sometimes have different or more than one meaning. Um, the need to understand the meaning of words is sweepingly fantastic discovery in the field of education and don't neglect it. The reason I wanted to read all of that is another point that's so interesting about this book and about Scientology. That kind of makes sense. Like, that's not crazy. Like, there's foundational stuff as I'm reading. Like, you get past the Xenu and the Thetans and all that, and you get to some of the foundational stuff, and it's, you know, you think about auditing. And you're like, that's therapy. Like, you're just talking to someone about your problems. Um, and then, of course, auditing ends up turning into a bit of a lie detector interrogation. But um, I'm curious what you think of those three principles and the idea that um, there, there's some foundational, interesting stuff about Scientology from a psychological perspective. Yeah, it's kind of like, kind of like we said before. He had at first when he's developing Dianetics, he has this insight into sci into psychology that is valuable. I think I even I even would go as far to say that like part of the Dianetic concepts kind of make sense in like a, like a Jungian sort of way. Like, like he, um, he, he touches on, um, he touches on, on the idea that like in Dianetics, there are two, something like there are two, um, I'm trying to pull my notes here. There's like two forms of existence or two uh, ideas. And one has to overcome the, other but like what with the with while i look for that i'm going to talk about the education of it um yeah you're right those educational theories are pretty sent especially i would say even like forward thinking for the time like he's thinking about how like now we have manipulatives like to do math or, or if they're you're like a math or science teacher and everything the push for everything is like more hands-on and more visual than it ever was. And because of technology, we're able to do more visual things than we ever were. We're able to show videos, you know, before a lot of things were theoretical, like think about like a chemistry lesson where it's like, you kind of have to imagine like atoms or, or like um, electrons interacting with each other. But now the, all of that can be visualized, right? We're through, through a, 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 like a simulate, simu like a simulation or simulated mm -hmm. video. 
Uh, you could even imagine yourself, you could like before you would maybe you'd read like a historical text and you had to imagine being present at maybe the stabbing of Julius Caesar. But now you can watch a video recreation of it happening and live uh, reenactment. Um, you can visit Stonehenge. You can visit any any point and any place in history. He's saying that in his first precept, right? He's saying it's uh, it, it would be very difficult and very um from a psych- psychological point of view to have a student have to imagine these things that aren't real. It requires them to have a certain imagination that maybe they're not, they're not uh, able to produce. His second precept is probably the one that makes the most sense to me. Um, uh, that's the, or the third precept where you have to break everything down. If they don't understand it at a certain point, the idea that they have to understand language and and they have to understand the definition of things before they take a giant leap. Um, I think he's a hundred percent right about that. If you don't know the content of what you're talking about and you, and you don't know it from a base level, um, you can't get up to the upper levels. It's what we call scaffolding. Like if you want to go from, if you want to understand algebra, you have to understand addition, subtraction, division, multiplication first. And then you can go into using them all together in combination. And then you go to PEMDAS and algebra and all that. Um, You can't talk about understanding the foundations of democracy without understanding Greece and Rome. It's like the same idea. He's basically describing, describing um, principles of scaffolding. So there's, there's definitely a lot of information in there that makes sense. Um, I wasn't able to find his Dianetic, uh, he, they, there was a pretty big chapter yeah. about him, but basically there were some things, if you read the book where they talk about Dianetics and I was like, that's not bad psychology necessarily. He didn't mention, uh, there's no mention of like Thetans and, and interstellar conflict going on. And I think it's when he, he was a, the thing was, is that he was a fantastic fiction writer. And I think even a competent psychologist but it's when he tried to combine the two is sure. where you run into problems. And I think he knew that. I think he – I think at the end of the day, this was just another one of his scams that he just w- kind of rolled with. And other people were willing to accept. Um, one of the notes I highlighted in in pink, meaning like this is one of the modes notes I wanted to talk about here, um, was about – well, one is about the, the precepts. I'll go back to that, but the affirmations rather. But um, it says that um, Scientology was a religion rather perfectly calibrated for its time and place since American culture and soon the rest of the world was bending increasingly towards the, the worship of the celebrity, the worship of the celebrity with Hollywood as its chief shrine. So yeah, I think he, he, it was him from him living in LA and having that experience of like the increasing, especially at that time, increasing turn of America towards Hollywood and Hollywood culture that really made him think like, I I have to be a showman and and I'm going to, I'm going to like reveal this religion as showy as possible as like, ostentatious or or out there as possible. Um, I also said that 
saw that uh, in the book, he says, Hubbard ingeniously developed Scientology into a series of veiled revelations, each yeah. of which promised greater abilities and increased spiritual power. To keep a person on the Scientology path, Hubbard once told his associates, feed them a mystery sandwich. Now, the concept of a mystery sandwich is something you would see like an author say, right? They're always talking about. Or a pyramid scheme. Or a pyramid scheme. Yeah, or a pyramid scheme. Exactly. It's You can't give them all the knowledge up front. you got to give them like a little bit of a taste. If you give it all up front, they'll stop reading or they'll stop feeding into your scheme. Uh, but if you give them a little taste well, every time. So he knew how to use psychology great, for sure. I think it's in, I want to say it was in the preface. Uh, Paul Haggis is, um, a, a, his story is told throughout basically the entire book. Um, but there is a, uh, there is the, the story of when he reached level three, um, which is, uh, it says here, uh, carrying an empty briefcase, Haggis went to the advanced organization building in Los Angeles where the OT3 material was held. A supervisor handed him a manila envelope. Haggis locked it in the briefcase, which was lashed to his arm. He then ent secured, entered a secure study room and bolted the door behind him. At last, he was able to examine the religion's highest mysteries, revealed in a couple of pages of Hubbard's handwritten scrawl. After a few minutes, Haggis returned to the supervisor. I don't understand, Haggis said. Do you know the words? I know the word again, the principal, do you know the words? I know the words. I just don't understand. Go back and read it again. The supervisor suggested Haggis did. So in a moment he returned, is this a metaphor? He asked, no, the supervisor responded. It is what it is. Do the actions that are required. Maybe it's an insanity test. Haggis thought if you believe it, you're automatically kicked out. He considered that possibility, but when he read it again, he decided this is madness. Um, Level three, of course, is where you start to learn about Xenu and, and some of the more fantastical elements. But, you know, it's that idea. And by the way, at that point, he did not leave Scientology. It's, you're so invested at that point, financially, emotionally, uh, your family, uh, all of this, you're in too deep uh, and there's no backing out. So very, very interesting. Matt, any other thoughts on this before we pivot over to our other book? <laughs> um. I, I highly recommend this book. I think yeah, and I, treated I was going to ask. Yeah. I, I, I treated it not as a, like a book about Scientology, but really a book. Of, it was really for me, a more of a book about psych psychology. It was a book about um, one person's inner workings. And I think you, you hit it on the head when we, you talked about the the main part of the book to me the crux of the book was his affirmations because the affirmations kind of kind of says it all about him um and his insecurities um i highlighted the point if one looks behind the affirmations to the conditions they are meant to correct one sees a man who is ashamed of his tendency to fabricate personal stories one who is conflicted about his sexual needs one and also one who worries about his mortality. He has a predatory view of women, but at the same time fears their power to humiliate him. There's something very, very Freudian about that. Oh, yeah. That he has, you know, he's got this really deep, innate sexual desire, but he's also afraid of them uh, having power over him, especially to, to humiliate him in bed uh, with, I guess, with his impotency. Um, 
they have his uh, he he's confessing that he I mean really everything that everything he confesses in those affirmations are are insecurities that he sees within himself and inad- inadequacies and I think what better way to eliminate or alleviate those than to become a a person of um, the ability to cure himself, which is a really yeah. huge theme in the book is being able to cure yourself of all of these ailments and these issues. Don't listen to the psychiatrists. Don't listen to the, the science out there. You can fix it yourself. Like I did. He almost, he, he kind of reinvents himself as a, as a profit figure, but I think it's all very self-serving. It's all for the purpose of overcoming his own, his own, emotional hangups that he has um very interesting study yeah yeah no i i also agree i I first read this back in 2014 and then read it again obviously this summer um and it's a really fantastic book i definitely recommend people check it out a lot of times i say i read nonfiction 99 percent of the time and people say sean that must be really boring reading only nonfiction. and i say sometimes nonfiction is just if not more interesting than fiction so um this reads like a fiction book because uh, the stories are a bit fantastical, but it's true. So, it, it or legally, actually, legally, we can't say it's true. Legally, we can't yes. say. And by the way, everything we've talked about is is purely in jest, and we we yes. haven't nothing we've said has been serious. Um, right. This is all strictly for a parody comedy, um, and it is not meant to be taken literally. Please do not reasons. take us to court. Yeah, um, but it's an interesting read. I spent a while reading it just because I, I had to, I felt like every few pages or so I had to like put it down and think and just like think about it. And it was, it's a very, very fascinating, fascinating read. Yes. Well, Matt, speaking um, of books that make you think, uh, I don't know if they're good thoughts. The Iowa baseball confederacy by WP Kinsella. Now, Matt, I'm going to let you start on this one. And I have a very important question. Uh, you're, you're obviously a scholar of history. Um, is this yeah. book good? That's, I can't you know tell. What? You know what? That's the that's the exact same question I find myself asking. Because this may when be I, this I, is either brilliant or dog shit, and I <laughs> and I and I don't I can't I'm not smart enough to. I was hoping you'd be smart enough to tell there's me. There's no in between, and I kind of want a third party here to, to. I want somebody else to read it mm. because I I I thought. I thought that we were both going to have completely different ideas, like where I was going to be like, I don't know, Sean, is this, is this like, um, you know, is this like the great American novel or is it like, you know, toilet paper? But like, I think we're both at that point where we just don't, I, I thought you were going to say for sure that it, this was, this was like a steaming pile of crap, you know, but what, there's, what there, are, there are like little nuggets of brilliance in there. Like, well, that's what it is. And I, I, I think Maybe you can convince me otherwise. I think I'm going to lean like 5149 towards brilliance. Mm-hmm. I think it, there's more good than bad. The problem I kept having is I would read it and I'd read like a couple of pages and I'd be like, oh, this is really interesting. And oh, that's kind of a thinker. That's really interesting. And it's like, and then Leonardo da Vinci came in in a hot air balloon. And I'm like, <laughs> this guy's out of his mind. Yeah. You know, but, it's like, when I got to always, that part. I think I think that my my brain was just like is he is he trolling us like was this all just yeah. a joke like because yeah, I was really like, invested at that point the the game was going on for like the four hundred inning I was like whoa this is like I think that so so a little background on the story is that 
the author, W.P. Kinsella, uh, he, this is not his most famous work. Um, he, of course, wrote the book that would become Field of Dreams. He wrote uh, Shoeless, Shoeless Joe, Joe yeah. which was the book that was adapted into the very successful baseball movie Field of Dreams. One of my favorite sports movies um, that, I've, that I've seen. Um, he uses magical realism in both. Not like like that's just part of his style. And I have not for record, I have not read Shoeless Joe. I've seen Field of Dreams, the movie, but um, I I kind of want to read Shoeless Joe after after reading this book. Um, and I think that he he ha- he obviously loves baseball, but I think the book, just like Field of Dreams, it's it's about far more than just baseball. Like baseball is very much at the surface and at the heart of the story, but he's this, it's like telling a story through the language of baseball. Um, so I think what he's really telling and what he's really getting at is the story of, of um, obsession. Obsession is a very powerful theme throughout the book, right? The father um, in the, in the story, um, Matthew Clark is very, is like obsessed with, discovering the truth about he basically claims that there was this baseball confederacy, the Iowa baseball confederacy in the early 20th century that existed, but there are no history books that, that are no, nobody knows what he's talking about. Basically he's like, he's making this up that this, this confederacy, this league existed. It was at the time when the major league was at its nascent. The major league baseball, I think started in like the 1880s or 1890s. So it would have been like a rival for the major league, like major league baseball. Um, but the thing is that, that um, Matthew Clark, he's like convinced that this league existed and it's true. And, and he pursues a history degree, a graduate studies in, in history um, and tries to publish a book about it. And the history department like laughs at him. They're like, you're, this is all like raving nonsense, but you would make a really good, you know, fiction writer. You should probably, cause your writing style, maybe apply to be like a fiction author. And it like kind of breaks him. Um, then the dad, I, the dad gets killed by a line drive to the head. Yeah. Yes. It's beamed by a line drive that Gideon, who is the main character of the book. Uh, and from that point on the narrator, he basically says like that the, the ball, like he, he killed himself. Like he, he could have easily gotten away, away from the ball, but he let it kill him because he was so, I guess, distraught because he couldn't prove this league existed. And then the son takes up the mantle. Gideon takes up the mantle of trying to prove the existence of the Iowa baseball league or Iowa baseball confederacy rather. And he gets in turn obsessed and like loses his wife. And like, there's like a whole, yeah, it's just like a whole a whole big life consuming thing, um, until he meets his neighbor John Barron, and like John convinces him that actually this league did exist. He's like the only other person that seems to remember it, and then they travel through time, um, <laughs> and turns out the league does exist, and they're playing a, a, an ed- eternal baseball game that goes on for like. I see. I read in the notes. Forty days and forty innings. nights. Forty days and forty nights. Over two thousand innings of play. Um, so I think he's in that one of the one of the key moments of the book 
that and one of my favorite passages is when he's talking about what makes baseball different from other sports. Uh, and he talks about like how, how eternal it is. Like you could basically say, I think he says something like you, if you hit a home run, you know, the only things that confine it are the laws of physics. Like that ball could just go forever and there are no boundaries. And, and like the fence we think of as a boundary, but it's not really like it can, as if the runner can go far enough and the ball can go far enough, every place on earth can be a baseball field, which I thought was like really kind of out there and wild to think of. And then that's like followed up with like, uh, I don't know, like another, like, like uh, <laughs> another, another like jaunt through the carnival or something. Like there's always every, like you said, every like moment of brilliance is followed with like just some kind of random, like, and then they travel through time. It's like, okay. Um, very hot and cold. This book, very hot and cold. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for me, I think the the magical realism and the American folklore stuff is really interesting. American folklore is one of those things I would love to read more about. I just don't know that much about it. And it, I find it very mm. interesting. And I think there's some of the fantastical elements in the book really work, I think. I mean, I, one that comes to mind is, you know, they tell a story of when people in the town were suddenly afflicted, where they would suddenly de-age down to babies and then would grow mm-hmm. back up again. Like some of that stuff, I'm like, this is kind of interesting. And and the idea that uh, memories and history are someone can remember something, but it doesn't mean it existed. And this idea that you're burdened with this knowledge, that you're the only person in existence, the only place this knowledge is, like that's a really compelling concept yeah. to me. And I really, the book, the book missed for me in I think it spent too much time on uh, Gideon's romantic life, and I think there was uh, different girlfriends and women. And this, and again, I get that's part of the story. I don't think it served the overall narrative. I would have loved to have spent more time in the folklore. Um, our uh, drifting away, our Indian friend, and some of that mm. stuff I thought was more interesting. And then I think the landing. I think the end of the book really it didn't stick the landing for me. I think the first half is an interesting um, sort of uh, piece of its time, sets you up well. I think then post-time travel, getting introduced to the baseball game, I think is really interesting. I think by the time you get to the end of the game, he sort of has pushed the limits of reality almost too far, where it gets a little scattered and sporadic. And then it wraps up very quickly in an undefined way. I, I really wish the ending has had landed. Just I don't need a happy ending. I just need a more coherent ending. Right. Um, I, I agree. I totally agree with you about the ending. By the way, it was it was very like sudden and unsatisfying. Um, and it, and we're and I guess we're left to wonder whether or not everything happened, which I guess is part of magical realism. It's just part of the theme that you kind of have to have to accept, but it, it did end very abruptly and, and suddenly. And I think the most uninteresting part of the whole story was Gideon as, as, and his personal life. Like yes. he was just obsessed with this league, this Confederacy, but everything, I was way more compelled by drifting away and everything that was going on around him. 
he was almost like just the vessel that kind of carries you around. And I got to the point where I was like just skimming really quick through his like boring family and romantic interests because it was like, all right, we get it. He's obsessed with this league. He doesn't have time for anybody. Well, He's kind of become like a recluse. But like, especially in the second half of the book, we get Stan, I think, is a very interesting character. I think mm-hmm. the 12th hour church is an interesting concept. Um, and there's some interesting things that I think the. Uh, the baseball team players. Or I just think that whole, the, the, um, the mascot on the other team and then Gideon's the, ma- like there is a lot that's compelling in that sort of like second to third quarter of the book, like that mid mid into that end of the book um, that I really enjoyed reading. I'm like, wow, this is, you know, Gideon as a character really brightens up after he's traveled through time. You see him get involved and excited. His, his what he imagined is in fact real you start bringing in drifting away and that's where the book was really humming, I think. And, and it was disappointed at the beginning and the end. It wasn't quite as jazz, but I think that middle part really is, uh, was really compelling. Yeah. Um, I really liked when, when, uh, when drifting away hits like the game winning home run and the whole town gets like destroyed. It's like, it's just like, it just gets like swallowed up. That was just such a like the imagery of that was really uh, fascinating to me because it's almost like he he was out for revenge the whole time drifting away and he kind of he achieves it. There's a lot of really yeah a lot of deep themes with with uh, conflict with Native Americans and colonization, rapid uh, Western expansion in here. Great. Well, there's um, even even some of the fantastical stuff I think was really compelling where. Uh, I think of the the Black Angel statue, right? That he says some believe yeah. it just showed up one day, it grew out of the ground, and then suddenly it's playing in right field. That's three hundred, yeah. And and and, and I'm like, and on one side of me, I'm like that's stupid, but on the other, I'm like that's like th- as the game gets progressively crazier, and it's it, and it starts telling, and you're like, wow, this the the ramp, ramping up of it, and sort of the now Leonardo da Vinci's a little bit far, but. Um, yeah. I do like some of those elements. Um, they're, they're definitely interesting. Well, it seems like it's, yeah, it's all the elements of the folklore of the town and of the, of the community and of Iowa, that part of the country, it all kind of melds together. And I think he's big on that. Um, Kinsella is, uh, there's a lot of, 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 of like that kind of uniquely, I guess, uniquely American folklore that he introduces in field of dreams as well it almost becomes like a like a, an american myth of itself the idea that like this cornfield this iowa farmer you know without anybody's help builds this like cornfield and and all these old baseball players start appearing and play a baseball game it's like and then uh as the story goes on like other characters are intertwined and like his father is it's like a very big um it, it's like a story like yeah it's a story that is told with baseball as the language for, for uh, what's going on, the context. Um, my favorite quote, I found it uh, in the story. It says, why not baseball? My father would say, name me a more perfect game. Name me a game with more possibilities for magic, wizardry, voodoo, hoodoo, enchantment, obsession, possession. There's always time for daydreaming. Time to create your own illusions at the ballpark. I bet there isn't a magician alive anywhere who doesn't love baseball. Take the layout. 
Take the layout. No, no mere mortal could have dreamed up the dimensions of a baseball field. No man could be that perfect. Abner Doubleday, if he did inv indeed invent the game, must have received divine guidance. The field runs to infinity, he would shout, gesturing wildly. You ever think of that, Gid? There's no limit to how far a man might possibly hit a ball, and there's no limit to how far a fleet outfielder might run to retrieve it. The foul lines run on forever, forever diverging. There's no place in America that's not part of a major league ball field. The meanest ghetto, the highest point of land, the Great Lakes, the Colorado River. Hell, there's no place on earth that's not part of a baseball field. Every other sport in the world is held in by boundaries. Some of absolute set size, some not. Football, hockey, tennis, ba basketball, golf. But there's no limit to the size of a baseball field. What other sport can claim that? So, yeah, I, that's uh, I just something that it's like things like that, that I, I never really thought of that. And the idea that a baseball game can go on forever. And, and in this story, it almost does that it lasts 40 days and 40 nights, just kind of illustrating, il illustrating the uh, the infinity of, of the game. Um, and I think like in turn. Trying to make the analogy, I guess, to stretch the analogy that like uh, there's an infinity, the, the concept of America at one time was thought of as infinite, that it could go on forever um, before the discovery, you know, that, uh, that that it was finite. And then we take that, we apply that to like the exploration of um, of the stars, the exploration of like the Milky Way. Infinity is a long time. No, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's just a it's a wild book. It's an interesting book. Any other any other thoughts or notes you have on this one? <sighs> Man, um, that's I don't know. That's pretty much all for me. I this is another one I would recommend. Um, I would I would say read this one. Um, be prepared for a lot of wild just stuff out of nowhere. Maybe skip through some of the more boring parts. And I wasn't, I thought this book, I wasn't prepared for this. I thought this book was going to be complete and utter trash, but this turned out to be, uh, this turned out to be pretty good. I like the writing style. I like the prose. I, I really looked forward to the parts where, um, they were interspersed with in the first part of the book with, um, drifting away the, the native American, his parts were really interesting telling the story of how he gets banished and, and sent to the reservation and uh, seems seemingly is in, put in a box. There's one part where he talks about like the, the concept of a square and how like the white man's universe is made of squares, like square, square cities, square buildings, square fields. Um, and the, the native American culture is built around circles like teepees and I wondered if there was some, if he was saying like a baseball field is a diamond. So it's kind of like a, like a mix between the two. I thought maybe there's something that they say about that. It, it was a lot of really fascinating philosophical concepts just kind of stitched together in this narrative. But it was almost like reading, it was like reading a, um, like a, like, like Candide or something. It was like reading a, like a, a book that a philosopher would have written under duress or under like to try to hide their like true meaning 
or something in there. Like, I feel like there's like a well, coded meeting. See, hmm. my way of saying that exact same thing is this feels like a book they would have made me read in high school. Oh, and yeah. like, I would have had to have like written a paper about some deeper meaning in it. Yeah. Um, I bet, th- I bet we could probably find some, I, this pro I guarantee you this Let's is see. a high school book. Um, it would not surprise me. I would say my advice on this, I'm not going to go as far as you. I'm glad I read it. I don't think you need to read it. It is my line on this. I think in terms of all the books we've read on the show, this is kind of in the middle of the pack. Like this is better than of Dyson men and ready player one. It's not like devil in the white city or going clear. Good. So interesting book. I'm glad I read it. It was a, a an entertaining read. Um, I read it on an airplane uh, where I do all my best reading and um, and and I'm I, I again and that sort of wind up bird chronicle away which by the way that's a much better version of this book um, it was just something unusual and I rarely read unusual things so I am glad we did it I, yeah. I and to be honest I'm sure the Reggie book is very good I think we have more to talk about because we read this versus the Reggie book so I'm glad we picked this Yes. No, I agree. Uh, we probably wouldn't. Uh, this would this would have been a much shorter episode about the Reggie book. Reggie book was very good, by the way. Um, Maybe next summer. But it was, a, you know, another uh, it was just another uh, another biography, you know. And now I've got, I'm adding uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin. I'm adding her baseball book to my to do list as we Great to, to read list as we speak. Just going to go on a big baseball kick. Yeah, it's called Wait Till Next Year. Story of the New York Giants, the New York Yankees, and the Brooklyn Dodgers. And a, a, a city that is divided between them. Uh, I was just about to recommend a baseball book. Um, but what is... Uh, crap, what's the name of that? It's the... Uh... Uh, let's see if I can just type a bunch of random uh, Game of Shadows, uh, which is about uh, Barry Bonds and the steroid scandal. Very good baseball book. I, I read that book, Sean. We, I think we read it for the show. <laughs> no, I recommended it for the show. Oh, you I recommended it. it I, yeah, I read it. Okay. I did. It was. It is a good book. Right. It's about, yeah, it's about um, the Can Barry Bonds issue, the clear book. and all that. Yeah, we, okay. never mind that. You reckon that was the that was um man I had a lot of time that was the that was the summer you uh I read like all the books you had recommended um yeah because League of Denial with the concussions was the same author did League you read of Denial that yeah same author yeah. that one and we did, ended up talking did, did about the, show? the one we talked about on the show was the summer of nineteen twenty two one uh, one American summer or one yes nineteen twenty one yes nineteen twenty one yeah yep. Um, yeah, a, we've done uh, a lot of good books. books. All very um, good books. And, yeah. and we'll be back next summer with uh, <laughs> with some more great reads, Matt. Who knows what we'll read? Maybe we'll read a book about cricket. Or about crickets, the animal. Or about um, uh, Rastafarianism. You know, at some point, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not saying we have to do this, but I am curious if we should do another for dummies challenge. Oh, a, always a previous always March Madness. Uh, that was a that was a favorite. That was a when good I did, one. I did feng shui and, and I did beekeeping. beekeeping. 
Yeah. And I think it well, might be was... neat to uh, to maybe attempt. They have uh, I'm on the for they have for dummy a uh, Twitch for dummies Twitch streaming for dummies. Okay. Um, among many other interesting ones, so maybe maybe that then might be can... a uh, a future. Maybe we'll challenge. start our own Twitch stream. There you go. Podcasting for dummies. We can maybe learn a thing or two. We probably should have read that. Yeah. <laughs> Before we started um, our show. Awesome. Please. We could write that book by now. Oh, absolutely. Podcast, oh my God, there's so many. Podcasters. And we are dummies. Yeah, fermenting so. for dummies. I need, I need to buy that book right now because I need to know how to make mead. Oh my God, they have magic for dummies. I actually might read. Okay. Anyway, we're getting off topic. Matt, uh, before we wrap up the show, we got to make an announcement. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, it is today is September 15th, which means we're midway through September. And legally, I have no control over this legally in the bylaws. Uh, it can't be a host theme month if it's less than half a month. So I'm here to officially announce coming later this fall. Sean Tember, no, Sean Vember, part of Seantum, the best season of the year. Okay, see, I thought you were going to go to Seantober. Well, we got to, I could. We do spooky season in October. Well, that's what I'm thinking. And it was Sean Sean Vember last year. Yeah. All right, I'm looking forward to Sean Vember. Yeah, we got some really good stuff, Matt. I'm excited. And actually, I may burn one or two. If we need something to talk about between on them, I may burn one or two of the topics. We might do it ahead of time. So we'll see. Cool. All right. Um, there's some good stuff. I'm all for so any, the schedule changes. Any, anything else, it. Matt, before we wrap it up? No, this was uh, this was two good books out there that uh, we uh, I, I highly recommend you go out and read. And then afterwards, treat yourself to a personal pan pizza from Pizza Hut because that's what I like to do when I do my summer reading every year. We will sign off on your book at Slip. Mm-hmm. You, you can sure get one can toy that. out of the toy chest. Yes, yes. Damn, that was that was exciting. Those were the days. My my fifth grade Great teacher chest. had she was obsessed with squirrels mm-hmm. for some reason, and she had squirrel bucks, which were little paper money with squirrels on them printed out, and you would get squirrel bucks for doing good things, then you would redeem them for prizes. It was See, like that's a, the, that's like the, an early fun, Dave and Buster's. That's all the fun shit you get to do when you're a teacher. It's it's all your. It's your uh, world of your own making. If you want to make squirrel bucks, you're going to make squirrel bucks and you're going to get the kids to love squirrel bucks. And the kids will remember them. You're, I still have one somewhere <laughs> in a box. It. Yeah, they'll remember them forever. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've run out of squirrel bucks and out of time. So on behalf of Matt, I'm Sean. Thanks everybody for joining us. We're going to see you next time for another great edition of Up for Debate. This has been a Coffee and Beer production, executive produced by Matt Mariani and Sean Jennings. To learn more, visit coffeeandbeer.tv.